Thank you, Pastor Bart, and good morning, church. Good to see you. Um, it's good to see, I think we have Baby Arrow this morning. What a cool name, by the way. So we've got four generations here this morning, right? Last week we talked about three, but four generations. What a, what a joy to, to, have, to have him with us and see Larry and his family and, and Mike and his family and, and Morgan and his growing family. Praise, praise God for his, his work. And may the Lord continue to bless our church for generations. So we are now into the Thanksgiving season, and I, I, I really love this season. Um, to me, and of course, there are plenty of people who will go through and enjoy um, aspects of Thanksgiving without truly giving the God of heaven the thanks that he is owed. But I, I, really, I really appreciate the, the uh, vestiges of Christianity that we see here in this American holiday where we stop and where people recognize it's a good thing to stop and give thanks. And so don't wait until Thanksgiving to give him thanks. Uh, let's make it like a month of Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? Like, let's not let it be just a, a Thanksgiving day or weekend, you know, and then, and then the Christmas season for, you know, you know two months um, of commercialism. Um, let, I love Christmas too, but, but let's, let's make this a month of, of Thanksgiving. You know, maybe you're feeling a little stressed this morning. Anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand, but anybody here feeling a little bit stressed about things? Well, well you know the answer to that, right? Is Thanksgiving. Stop and give God thanks for the way that He has provided for you and taken care of you and, and blessed you. And, 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 and that will often uh, remove a lot of the stress, and then the rest of it, I mean, it may be that you truly have some hard decisions to make, and, and maybe the way isn't entirely clear. We talked about fog today in ABF2, but you know what? Then you can cry out to God through the fog for help and direction, but with an attitude and a spirit of, of thanksgiving. And as you do, you can thank God for His provision in your life and for the people that He often uses to bring provision. And, and we see that here in our in this, this long text that, that Bart read for us this morning, God often uses people as his instruments to provide for us. And, and that's what we see here in this passage, how God used Joseph to provide for his family. And, and how, to, how God used Joseph to provide for his adopted country, for the Egyptians. God used Joseph to preserve their life. God also used Joseph to provide for his father's last wishes, and that's, that's where we'll, we'll close this morning. But, but first, let's talk about and think about how God used Joseph to provide for his family, Joseph's family, and for God's chosen people. And that's what we see at the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 46 and, and the first 12 verses of chapter 47. So look with me, if you would, back at Genesis chapter 46, verse 31. So Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So what, what exactly is going on here as Joseph preps his, his brothers for this audience with, 
with Pharaoh? Well, well, first of all, Goshen, which is later referred to at the, at the end of the, towards the end of this text as the, the land of Ramses. That's a later uh, name for the same place for Goshen. Goshen was a, a prime fertile land, perfect for livestock grazing, okay? And it was on the outskirts of the Egyptian metropolis. And so Joseph wants to settle his family in a place that would be a blessing to them, uh, the best of the land, but also a place where they would be protected from assimilating too much to Egyptian culture. In other words, a place where they could live for a long time it, under, under the umbrella of God's blessings, but where they could also preserve their distinctives of being followers of Yahweh. That, a place that would lessen their potential assimilation to uh, corruption and to the, the, the false religions of Egypt, right? All, all the deities, the pagan deities. And, and so Joseph here is, is actually being honest and being shrewd at the same time. And it's interesting here that he's actually using his cultural knowledge that he's learned of, of the Egyptians here. And, and so he understands that the Egyptians um, don't like shepherds, which is kind of a strange thing maybe, uh, but we actually see this uh, even as far as the New Testament where shepherds are kind of the bottom rung of society. And so he's actually using that to try to bring them into the, 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 the best of the land, but in a place where the Egyptians would maybe give them a little bit of space. And even the fact that, that Joseph wants Pharaoh to understand clearly that, and, and is going to explain very clearly to him that, that his family have brought their flocks and their herds. In other words, they have brought their wealth with them. You know, nomads can be wealthy people. I remember encountering nomads in Afghanistan who were actually, even though they lived in tents and didn't own land, their, 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 their number of camels and their number of sheep, they were actually wealthy. I remember stopping and, and having a nomad flag me down back in like 2005 and asked me if I had a, a, a charger for a satellite phone. I thought that was kind of interesting, you know. So, so anyway, the point is, he's assuring Pharaoh they're not going to be a drain on, on his society. They're not going to be freeloaders here, right? These are good, honest, humble, low-risk folks to accommodate. So that's kind of what we see going on here as, as, as Joseph is prepping his his brothers to meet Pharaoh. So let's, let's look at this meeting here in, in chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of, of, of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So here we see that the Joseph, instead of parading all of his brothers in before Joseph, he, he chose five of them, and I'm sure he chose wisely in terms of the ones he thought would make the best impression. And they answered Pharaoh's questions as Joseph had advised, but actually they took it a step further. They actually asked for Goshen. Remember, Joseph hadn't told them, ask for it, right? Uh, Pharaoh, uh, Joseph let Pharaoh know that's where they are right now, but they actually 
took it a step further and asked for Goshen. And I'm imagining at this point, Joseph may have been sweating a little bit, right? Uh, and, and here we see in this depiction of this conversation that Pharaoh is actually incredibly generous. He, he not only gives them the best of the land for their livestock, um, the, the best of the agricultural land, but he actually offers paying jobs. He says, if you have any able men around, if, if any of these guys are, are great at management, um, put them in charge of my livestock. And so we see here that God is using Joseph and God is using Pharaoh through Joseph's influence to provide for his people, for Joseph's family. Now, in the, in the next couple of verses, we see an interesting dialogue between Pharaoh. And you need to remember, Pharaoh is really the, the, the most, maybe the most powerful man in the world at this point, all right? He's considered a, a sun god by his people. And then you've got ancient Jacob, who has an audience with Pharaoh, who actually had access to the true God. And, and, and flawed as he was, Jacob was God's chosen representative. He was God's patriarch, right? And so we're going to see him bless Pharaoh. So look at verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of, my life, of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourn. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. So this is a bit of an interesting dialogue here. And, and we know from ancient literature uh, that's outside the Bible, just things that archaeologists have found, that the Egyptian perspective of the full old life was 110 years. So actually people were still living longer then than they do today, okay? And so 110 years to an Egyptian was considered a, a good old age, okay? And so here you have Jacob, who has already trumped that by two decades, right? He's 130 years old at this point. And so it, it must have come as a surprise to Pharaoh that, that Jacob was so negative about that. If anything, Pharaoh would have been a little bit intrigued, like, man, you've you know, what have you done right? And, and, and so Jacob here is, is saying, few and evil have been the days of my life. And at, at first read, it might seem that he's trying to be culturally humble. And you see this sometimes in the Middle East where people kind of self-denigrate, you know. Or it might look like he's just trying to get some sympathy by kind of whining a little bit. But the truth is, he was being honest. Abraham lived 175 years in Isaac 180 years, and Jacob's life had been difficult. Remember that Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and this is not in your notes, but remember that this is one of the commandments that says, and, and children, I hope you'll listen well here, but we all should, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, had Jacob done that? No, he actually had not. Okay, Jacob is a bad example uh, in terms of relating to family members, really up and down. Um, but he had dishonored his father by deceiving him. And so the Lord's hand of discipline, though 
God loved Jacob and was faithful to Jacob. He was also faithful to discipline him. And his life had been hard. He had, he had fled from his brother Esau to Mesopotamia. Fled from his brother for his life. Okay? Uh, he had been taken advantage of by, by Laban, which brought about all the, the Leah and Jacob business that caused so much pain. The, the ripple effects of, of that polygamous marriage had caused all kinds of, of pain. And the fact that he had favored one over the other had caused all kinds of pain. His beloved wife, Rachel, had died an untimely death. And then, of course, in, in our story that we've been studying over these last couple months, his loss of his favorite son, Joseph, for many years, for over 20 years, thinking him dead. And so finally, and I think, I think we may miss this, but I don't think the Jewish reader would have, that he had been exiled by necessity from the land of promise. So he's in Egypt, he's in a prosperous place, but he is not able to die in the land of promise. Remember Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So Jacob is no longer in this land of promise. But the main point here in verse 7 and verse 10, and we we see it twice in this this brief uh, recounting of this interchange between ancient Jacob and powerful Pharaoh The main point in verse 7 and 10 is that that Jacob, who is God's patriarch, blessed Pharaoh. You've got to look back and and remember the the promise that God made to to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. He he said in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham had mediated God's blessing on earth. And, and here we actually see Jacob doing the same to Pharaoh. Now, now Pharaoh had and was in the, in the, uh, at this very present time being a blessing to Jacob, uh, allowing a place for him and his family to survive and even thrive, okay? Um, but here we see Jacob mediating God's blessing to Pharaoh. So I think the takeaway here for us as we sojourn in not the promised land yet, are we agents of God's blessing to those who are close to us, to those, those that we encounter, to those who don't yet know him? And of course, the, the greatest way that we can do that is by, by being a light, right? By pointing them to, to Christ. But in all that we do, are we seeking to be a blessing to our neighbors, people who live around us, people we work with, to our employers? And we'll look at that here in a moment. So let's continue here as we consider how God used Joseph to provide for his family and his people. Well, verse 11 through 12 reads, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, now note here at that, that very last line, according to the number of their dependents, notice that Joseph's provision for his family did not involve corruption or nepotism, but fairness. It was actually that the, the amount of grain, the amount of food that he provided for his own family was according to the number of their dependents. And so we don't see Joseph taking advantage of the Egyptians in providing for his 
family. We see in this chapter that that God provides for his people and even God prospers his people. If you kind of scan down in in your Bible to verse 27, we read the, the summary of all this. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So in this, in this next section, we're actually going to see God use Joseph to, after providing for his own family, to provide for the Egyptians by saving their lives. And yet you may notice, and maybe you already have, that in doing so, they are going to lose physical wealth and freedom. And you just got to notice here um, that that there's an irony here uh, uh, going on here. You've got to notice that God is is actually doing the opposite for his people Israel. In a land that's not their own, he's actually prospering them at this point, as opposed to what we're going to see happen to the Egyptians. Now that's for a time and for a brief time before um, uh, something else happens to them. But then, in the end, they're going to leave Egypt, the, the cocoon as it were, this incubator of a nation. They're going to leave with great wealth. So that's all kind of, kind of interesting to see here. But the Lord provides for his people. In fact, the Lord prospers his people. And I love the second and third lines or verses of the great hymn, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. This is a great song to sing, and I hope we will in the next couple of weeks. Um, this is a great song to sing at Thanksgiving time, okay? Uh, and it talks about God prospering and defending his people. Verse 2 says, Praise to the Lord above all things, so wondrously reigning, sheltering you under his wings, and so gently sustaining Have you not seen all that is needful has been sent by his gracious ordaining? Verse 3 says, praise to the Lord who will prosper your work and defend you. Surely his goodness and mercy shall daily attend you. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriends you. So here's a question for you. Is this the prosperity gospel? I'm going to take a drink, a sip, while you think about that. Is that what we're talking about here? Because God is prospering his people, even physically here. Well, I'm going to say to that, no. And I'm going to say, yes. So maybe some of you have been drifting off to sleep. Maybe you'll want to wake up now. Um, This is the sort of place I've got to be careful with how I tread, uh, because I know I can get emails and stuff. No and yes. Let's start with the no. Prosperity gospel, as we hear it in our culture today, talks about your best life now, right? Living your best life now. And so I'm going to say no to that, okay? But where I'm going to say yes is your best life for eternity. If you have an eternal perspective, Uh, absolutely it's a prosperity gospel with an eternal perspective. So the prosperity gospel folks today say that the Lord only wants physical prosperity in this life for his people. Therefore, any suffering or calamity that they endure cannot be from his hand. In fact, the implication often is the, the suffering that you may endure in this life, it's your fault for having a lack of faith 
Not believing strongly enough that God just wants to make you rich, right? And of course, we know that this whole house of cards falls apart because everybody gets sick and dies at some point, right? Uh, COVID was just a very interesting test for prosperity gospel people, okay? Um, You know, uh, but anyway, I won't go into all that. I'm not here to knock all those folks. Um, But the idea here then is that, okay, so if you're suffering, somehow it's your fault for a lack of, of faith, right? Because God would never send calamity from his hand to one of his people. Well, what does the Bible actually have to say about that? Well, the whole story of Joseph is, is really an answer. But Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7 is very clear in which God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So let's remember the big picture here in the story of Jacob and Joseph and his sons and his descendants, the the seeds of the nation of Israel, right? And what would happen to them as they're in this incubator of Egypt in which God is is in a sense protecting them and and prospering them and preparing them to go out uh, with the wealth they need to, to actually become a great nation. But we'll remember that that Israel's long-term prosperity would include hardship and suffering that was ordained by God's hand. They would end up enslaved for several hundred years, but this would prepare them to to leave as a full-on nation and to actually plunder the Egyptians as they did so as part of God's sovereign plan. And so when they left Egypt several centuries later, they left with the material wealth they needed to create a full-on nation in the land of promise. I mean, they left with, with the livestock wealth, but even, even, the, even the metal wealth they would need that they were able to plunder from the Egyptians on their way out, meaning gold and, and that kind of stuff. Okay? Kent Hughes kind of applies this into our own lives and way of thinking by, by writing, as God's children, we become subjects of his persistent prosperity as he brings calamity and well-being to affect the prosperity of our souls. Everything we endure and enjoy, all our relationships, all our honors, all our defects, all our serendipities, all our disappointments, all our gains and losses are meant for our ultimate prosperity. So so what does your ultimate prosperity look like? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That's what we're living for. That's what he's preparing us for. And that is why we can believe with certainty the words of Jeremiah 29, 11, in which God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so I, I love the words of the song that says, even in the midst of our suffering, you're working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. That's why we, we join hearts today with the persecuted church around the world, and we, we pray for them. And, and you know, some of, the, some of them I'm sure would say, please pray that the persecution would stop, all right? But others don't say that. They pray, they pray, pray that we would be faithful, you know? Pray that some of them don't want it to stop because they're afraid what might happen, because they know they're so aware of their need of God. And, and, and in many of these places, the more that the, the devil prompts governments to push on people, the more the church grows, right? As people lose their freedom and, and their wealth uh, because of oppression. And as, they, as, they, as they, they cling tighter to Jesus, 
And they treasure his word because it's a valuable commodity to them. Last week, we, we had a, a, a couple um, that we've known for a long time. Tom and, and Casey um, stay a night with us. And I, I shared with you um, a while back when we were going through Hebrews. I think it was Hebrews, Hebrews 13, actually Casey's story. Casey was a young lady who grew up in our youth group where Beth and I were, were, were shepherding in, in uh, South Carolina 20, 20 years ago. And she was, and I, I shared with you, she was just shy, just a little wallflower, right? And when she found out that we were planning to move to Afghanistan, she thought, she really thought we were certifiably nuts. She thought that was crazy. But the Lord worked in her life. And, and over a, a period of, of years, she, the Lord chooses the most unlikely. And, and we get this email in Afghanistan from Casey saying, hey, I'm in nursing school. Could I, could I come and spend a summer or a, a couple months with you? I think it was a summer, her summer break or something. And, and so, you know, I wrote her dad and said, um, um, are you in on this, you know? And he, and, and he said, hey, this is a huge step of faith for us. Uh, in fact, the week before, I, I knew that Time Magazine had come out with an article on a, a, a female aid worker who had been abducted by the Taliban. And it was a terrible article. And I, you know, here you have this woman's like headshot on the, you know, cover of Time Magazine. And I mean, it got to me. I knew it had gotten to her dad. She came. She flourished. Years later, she actually went back as a, as a single nurse and, and served in a different part of the country in the north and joined Tom's team. Well, I told you about her story. Tom is just a kind of an unassuming, um, just a faithful guy who, an engineer, um, who I met uh, when I first visited the country before 9-11. All right, well, by then, Tom had married a, a, a wonderful lady named Faith. Tom and Faith had had children. And, and, uh, and so they were serving in this area, and Casey was on their team. One day, Faith got really sick, and it's still kind of a mystery what happened. But she went into um, uh, uh, cardiac arrest. I mean, they, they, they were trying to get her to, a, um, to, a, to a, a, a nearby city that had a military hospital. And in the back of the car, over a period of about 45 minutes, Casey um, revived her several times. And, and she died right in front of her children, right? And, and so over the next couple of years, what, what's interesting is um, they actually went back to their town and, and, and instead, of, and Tom at this point realized that, and they, there was a lot of work to do to, to kind of repatriate her body back to America, but, but Tom realized that this was it. Like he, it, he probably wasn't gonna, this was, this was his last week in country. And so he, 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 and, he and Casey, who are now married, which is pretty a sweet story. Uh, several years later, how the Lord brought them together. She had actually helped mother the children there in that situation and helped get them out of the country and all that. But, but during that week, um, uh, he, he just shared with us the other night, and I'd actually never heard the story from his perspective, but how even in the fog, okay, and even in the, the, the shock and the, and the grief, um, Holy Spirit prompted him, you know, you only got a, a couple days left, and th- you're, you're on your way out of here. And you, You've had to be very careful, very diplomatic in terms of, um, you know, an extremely Islamic place and very, very, very careful with a, you know, high risk environment. Anytime you try to share Christ, uh, it has to always be one-on-one and very, very careful, very vetted, really trusting the Holy Spirit that this is not somebody who's got ulterior motives. Um, well, this is my time to be bold. And so he, he gave a number of people copies of the Bible. 
and, and said to them, faith would want you to have this and to read this. And he shared that as he, over the next couple of years, went through the process of grief, and I think he still is. Even he's married and, and they've had some more kids. They had, you know, they had, what, six of them, I think. Um, and, 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 and even as, as their family's grown and he's seeing the Lord's blessing, he's still grieving. He's still grieving. And he probably always will be grieving, he, he said. But as he has talked to the Lord about all this, he said to the Lord, don't let my wife's death be in vain. Because it's not just me, but it's my kids. You've taken her from us. Don't let this life be wasted. And, and so what does that mean to Tom? What he's asking the Lord to do is save people through this. He's saying, Lord, if, if people would read those Bibles and come to faith, even if it was one, it, it would be meaningful. It would be worth it because this is your glory. This is your work. But please do even more than that. That's, that's the cry of his heart, and he knows there's no way he'll ever know until he gets to heaven. But Tom, even as he struggles, and he's been raw and very honest with God, with his feelings, okay, um, even as he has struggled and wrestled with the Lord, Tom gets this point that God does all things to prosper his children eternally. Well, let's move on to the next point. And that is Joseph provided for his family. God prospered his family through him. But Joseph also provides here in this text for his adopted people. That would be the Egyptians. And I'd just like to remind you again of Genesis 12, 3, and, and how God's covenant people are to interact with the, with, with the people around them. And that is, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, after all that he went through, Joseph could have resented the Egyptians, but we see in the way that he interacts with them that he actually respected them, and he served them, and he, he looked out for their well-being. Now, in, in ABF2, we're, we're almost finished going through a book uh, that was actually originally intended for missionaries, and, and if you're a missionary or if you're praying about missions, uh, this is really one of the top three books I would recommend that you read. It's entitled Cross-Cultural Servanthood by Dwayne Elmer. And the very last chapter of this book Elmer actually looks at the life of Joseph, and he looks at how all of these principles that he walks through in terms of what it looks like to serve people cross-culturally is just so well encapsulated by Joseph's example. And so he writes, Joseph knew how to communicate respect to everyone around him, and they promoted him. Joseph recognized his captor's dignity. He treated them not as enemies or oppressors, but as those who bore the image of the Creator the creator that he wished to serve. So let's, let's look at this text, and, and I hope you'll see some of that come out, as we've already seen in, in Joseph's interactions with, with Potiphar, and what we've seen with his interactions with the people in jail, the, uh, the, the, the warden, how he interacted with, with Pharaoh, and now how he interacts with the actual people of Egypt, the actual citizens of Egypt. And so we read in verse 13, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now note here 
that Joseph deposited this money into Pharaoh's treasury, not into his own. He provided for his adopted people, but also for his employer, Pharaoh. Now, actually, Elmer has something to say about that uh, when you think about how we relate with our employers, with our bosses, with our, our companies. Elmer writes, Joseph built trust so effectively that each authority, Potiphar, the warden, Pharaoh, turned their world over to Joseph. Joseph built trust by keeping his master's best interest in mind. He not only extended trust to others, but the others returned the trust, giving Joseph a strategic place from which to fulfill God's purposes. So, do do you want to be a good witness to your employer? Do you want to be a good witness at work, on, on the job? Well, you know, you know what a good starting place is? Do your work really well. Work hard, right? Care, truly, for your employer's best interest. And, and we'll notice that Joseph did so without actually taking advantage of the Egyptian people. So you might want to read carefully to, to notice that because at first read it might seem like he did take advantage of the Egyptian people. Okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain as we continue. Verse, verse 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land." Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants on them from one end of Egypt to the other, except for one class that we'll read about here. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Now, I wonder if any of that um, disturbed you, Um, because evidently Joseph was not a proponent, let's just say, for small government. I'll let that sink in as I take another sip. You're going to get nervous whenever you see me reaching for my water. Well, in, in effect, what Joseph did here in Egypt, he, he saved the nation. He saved these people's lives, but he created a feudal state as he did so. And it just so happens that we Americans aren't big fans of feudal states. At least most Americans aren't. Sadly, uh, more and more seem to be moving in that direction today. But I would like to remind you here uh, of a couple things. Um, first of all, uh, this, that, that's, this scripture 
uh, is not prescriptive, the story, when you read narrative in the Bible, but descriptive. Okay, now there are principles that have transfer that apply that are prescriptive, but whenever you read a story, like for instance, and Judas went out and hung himself. Okay, that's not necessarily prescriptive. In fact, it's not prescriptive. Please don't go do so, okay? But it's telling you exactly what happened in that time and place and culture. And so I've seen all kinds of responses to this. There are socialists out there who are Christians and who will say, hey, this, look at this. You know, here you have, you know, a an apologetic in the Bible for socialism or for government controlling everything, right? Then you have others who are skeptics who will use this text to say, what a wicked device here. You can see how the Bible is erroneous because here it seems to be endorsing uh, socialism. And I don't believe the Bible is endorsing that at all. Um, I think it's simply describing uh, how the Lord used Joseph in a certain context um, millennia ago to care for and to, to preserve the nation of Egypt in its day. So you may ask, well then, why, why, why am I? You've probably figured out already. I'm a proponent for limited government in our society today, and that's for biblical reasons. And, and one of them being, uh, there's more than one. Part of it's just the, the value of working hard and, and people having, um, uh, when they have ownership in things, they tend to work harder. Okay, but another is that absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And, and actually, we're going to see that if you keep studying the Bible. When you get to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, you see that there was a new Pharaoh, a new king that arose, who did not know Joseph, and he used his power to oppress. But we need to remember, um, and, and in his commentary on, on Genesis, there's a Lutheran theologian named Gerald von Rad, who very well, I think, summarizes this. He says, the expositor must resist as much as possible the question of the extent to which Joseph's measures stands the test of modern opinion. And this is, the, this is what I want you to remember. The ancient narrator is honestly amazed and wants the reader also to be amazed at the way an expedient was found to save the people from a gigantic catastrophe. So in the people's mind, it was their suggestion that they become uh, a feudal state. And we'll see in verse 25 that the Egyptians appreciated Joseph's measures. So let's continue to read verse 23 through 26. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And I think it's very important to note here that, that power did not corrupt Joseph because of his relationship with the Lord. Now, he didn't have absolute power, but it did not corrupt Joseph. And that is, we see this, that Joseph was fair. Even in turning Egypt into a feudal state, we see here that only 20% of the grain that people produced went to Pharaoh. Now, historical records from this time in, in Egypt and Mesopotamia show us that tenant farmers in the day often paid 40 to 60% of their share, the share of their crop to overlords, and yet, and yet Joseph only asked for 20%. In other words, caring for the prosperity or the well-being of these people who were under his stewardship. 
Note that Joseph was benevolent, but he also didn't provide them with something for nothing. Now, how, how might that apply to us today? Well, and, and I, we don't have time to get into to, to all of this, but, but let me just simply say this, that work is God's plan for humanity, okay? Work came be, before the fall in the Garden of Eden when God placed Adam and, and, and Eve into the, into the garden to, to tend to it, right? Work is God's plan. Laziness is not. And so it, it, there's an old saying that it's better to teach a man to fish than to just feed him fish all his life, right? So even in this feudal kind of arrangement, Joseph is empowering the people to work and to uh, get a return on their work, on their investment. And so they said, you have saved our lives, verse 25. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So God used Joseph to prosper and defend and, and um, bless his family, his chosen people, but also the people of his adopted nation. And here at the very end of this chapter, we see how the Lord used Joseph to provide for his own father, his, his father's dying wishes. So look at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Now, notice that the Lord, in his kindness to Jacob, even, remember, the Lord disciplined Jacob, but it was loving discipline. The whole point of the discipline was to bring Jacob from his vanity right, and his self-reliance back to God-reliance. And we see that at the end of his life. We see a lot of faith in the way that he blesses his children at the end of his, at the end of his life. And, and the writer of Hebrews actually points back to that. But here, we see that the Lord gave Jacob and Joseph 17 more years together. I don't know if that dawned on you or not, but that mirrors the amount of time that they had had in Joseph's childhood, 17 years before Joseph had been taken from him through the sin of his brother. So 17 more years, and just reading in between the lines, I think it was just a good, tranquil, blessed time for Jacob and Joseph to spend together in Egypt, a time of provision. And we, we read in verse 29, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, so after 17 years, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Um, what, what's up with this whole hand under the thigh thing? Uh, by the way, I'm glad we don't do this today. Um, but that was an ancient practice of making a solemn promise. Okay? A solemn promise. And Abraham had done this in, in Genesis chapter 24. He had done this with a servant that he sent to find a wife for his son Isaac. Right? He had said, promise me that, that you, you won't take her from the, you know, the pagan tribes, but this will, that, that this will be a blood relative, and here's where you're to go, and, and put your hand under my thigh. And so I think probably Jacob remembers this, or maybe it was such a common practice that, that you know, but it meant, hey, this is serious business here. You are making a solemn pledge here. And so what was that? He says, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my father's. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their 
burying place. All right, so what's all this about land and the land of promise and burial places? Um, do we have any Texans in the room? I can count on them to right away. I asked a couple weeks ago, any of you seen Les Miserables? People are like, eh, do I need to honestly answer that? Texans all right away raise their hand. No hesitation, right? Um, they're, they're, Texans kind of get this a little bit. In fact, I think, what was it? was a couple weeks ago after something. I, I was talking to a couple Texans, and I didn't realize it, that everybody that I was just talking to were born in Texas. And when I did, Joshua Latham, who's one of them, said, you know you're standing in the midst of greatness. And I couldn't help but just say, I am. You're right. Well, you know, I knew this. Texans kind of get this whole idea of, you know, bury me in Texas, right? You know, I knew this guy, missionary in Tajikistan, who, who actually brought a little jar of dirt from Texas. And at the hospital when his kid was born, he said, wait a minute, hold on. And he actually pulled out like a towel and poured the dirt out on the towel under the bed. They let you do stuff like that in places like Tajikistan, I guess. And, and, and so this kid could be born on Texas soil, right? A little bit crazy, uh, maybe you might think. Uh, I think everybody else has a little better sense and they're just kind of rolling their eyes. But, but you know what? That's kind of this idea here of this promised land. I've got to be buried with my fathers in the land of promise. And so Jacob answered him, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This idea of of worship, of of gratitude, of of relief, that I'm going to be buried in the cave of Machpelah, in the promised land, with the bones of Abraham and Isaac. Now that that was a desire of faith. He, He could have been happy in Egypt. It was a comfortable place there in the land of Goshen. He had his family now. He had prosperity now. But Egypt was not the promised land. And though God provided for Jacob and his clan in Egypt, his his heart was back in the promised land. And and God had used his son Joseph to provide the fulfillment then of of that wish, to to bury his his bones there. And so what what I want us to to, to leave with today, with a a memory, when we think about God's provision and even in this way how God provided for ancient Jacob here, right? Old crusty Jacob, you know, prolific sinner, and yet, yet a man who, who died by faith and ended well. I want, I want you to remember that, you know what? We have a much greater savior than Joseph. Joseph was a savior figure. Joseph was a means of God's provision for his family, for his adopted nation, really for the world, and for his own father's final wishes. But how much a greater savior do we have? Joseph promised, yes, I will take your bones and I will... One, I, I promise to, to bury you and, and to get you to that cave in the promised land and to, and to bury you with your fathers. But our, our Savior went before us and he said that he goes to prepare a resting place for our souls. And it won't be just our souls. It's going to be the new bodies that he gives us. The, the glorified bodies, patterned after Christ's resurrection body that we'll recognize to, to live in our promised land for eternity. So it's not just a, a place to to rest in peace, as it were, and decay, this is a place to live life abundantly. So Jesus said in John 14, 1 through 3, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this story. We thank you for every word in your book uh, that you've given us of, of revelation of your works and of who you are. And Lord, we thank you that we have a great provider, a redeemer Christ who spilled his own lifeblood for our sins on our behalf before you, a holy God, so that we might be redeemed and forgiven. Lord, we, we thank you that we have access to your great throne of grace because of our great Savior, Jesus. And we thank you that he isn't just resting on his laurels now, but he's interceding for us. And he's even preparing places for us to, to reign and to dwell and to live with you. Lord, we, we look forward to that. I pray that our hearts truly would, that we would look forward to the promised land that you have promised us. Help us live for you every day. And Lord, even in our time of communion now, I pray that you would help us to reflect on the blessed assurance that we have in Christ. In his name I pray, amen.